Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 13. Welcome back. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the famous master-slave dialectic from Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, and we will see what it means for the course of human history. It is certainly a big topic, and I'll try to cover it the best I can. Just to back up, the Phenomenology of Spirit was Hegel's first major work. It was written in 1807, and it is now regarded as one of the major philosophical works in Western philosophy. Hegel biographer Terry Pinkert has said of it, it has been praised and blamed for the development of existentialism, communism, fascism, death theology, and historicist nihilism. So that's, that's a lot uh, to be praised and blamed for. And just a little bit of background, the Phenomenology of Spirit was written before Hegel's later mature works, uh, The Science of Logic and his Encyclopedia, which we have discussed a lot here before in previous episodes. And the Phenomenology of Spirit doesn't really adhere to the latter mature system of, that we've discussed, but it does foreshadow it. And some say it actually directly links to it and makes it all possible, depending on your point of view. We can certainly get into this in a future episode. Now, there's an interesting story about the uh, phenomenology. Um, it has to do with Napoleon. And let me begin with that. Um, as Hegel was putting the finishing touches on the phenomenology of spirit, Napoleon was, in fact, engaging Prussian troops in 1806 um, in the in the Battle of Jena, um, which was very near where Hegel was living at the time. And on the day before the battle actually occurred, Napoleon entered the city of Jena, and Hegel saw him in person. And um, Napoleon, I think, was going to go out and scout the, uh, the battlefield. And Hegel, as I said, saw him, and he, he later wrote a letter to a friend about it. And here's what Hegel had to say. I saw the emperor, this world soul, riding out of the city on a reconnaissance. It is indeed a wonderful sensation to see such an individual who, here at a single point astride a horse, reaches out over the world and masters it. This extraordinary man, whom it is impossible not to admire. Terry Pinkert also notes that Hegel's comment is all the more striking since it at that point, he had already composed the crucial section of the phenomenology in which he remarked that the revolution had now officially passed to another land of Germany that would complete in thought what the revolution had only partially accomplished in practice. And we'll come back to Napoleon later on. First, though, before getting into the master-slave dialectic, I would like to review just what is meant by phenomenology. It is how consciousness is structured from the first-person point of view. Hegel states in the phenomenology that what phenomenology is trying to do is it's an exposition of the coming to be of knowledge. Hegel says it is the various shapes of mind-spirit as stations on the way through which mind-spirit becomes pure knowledge. So this, this is what phenomenology is. This is what Hegel's doing in the phenomenology of spirit and Let's now get into the master-slave dialectic from this work. And I'm going to jump to, the, uh, to chapter 4, where he begins the development of self-consciousness. 
And it's quite a remarkable story. Some say it's one of the most famous philosophical stories of, along with Plato's cave. Now, this is my own summary, but I will acknowledge that there are many different takes on this and many different nuances. Um, and it's been studied by a lot of different people for a long time. But here are the basics as I see it. At first, consciousness perceives an object outside of itself. Um, and it perceives this object as not being independent and thinks it is part of itself. Um, and however, in desiring this object, losing itself in it, it comes to see itself as separate. It's like when you think of something or look at something, you forget about yourself for a second and you get totally immersed in with the thing you're looking at or observing. You then return to yourself and this act actually sets up a differentiation from yourself and the object. So I am I and I'm not that other thing. This is the beginning of self-consciousness of the formation of an I. And um, it's about defining itself by saying I am what I am by not being something else. However, now the story gets a little more complicated. The next step is that consciousness actually perceives another life outside of itself. Now, this is different than just an object. Uh, it has a movement of its own. This life mirrors to an extent what consciousness is itself, which is a life on its own. So the presence of life outside itself is inescapable. So consciousness must learn to live with this as a definition of itself. However, Self-consciousness is still about affirming itself. So the other life must affirm the first self-consciousness itself. And it needs to do this by affirming that it itself, consciousness is not just life, like the other life form that it sees, but it is beyond life itself. It's, it has the quality of pure being, that it is totally free. It must set itself apart and above and beyond this other consciousness that it perceives out there. However, at the same time, it needs this other consciousness to affirm this. The other consciousness must recognize this aspect of the first self-consciousness. And by recognizing the first, the second consciousness enables the first self-consciousness to recognize itself. So, the first self-consciousness realizes that when the other consciousness recognizes it, it gives its own self reality. And recognition is key here. This is a very important point. I know it's complicated. And we'll keep looking at this. And it gets even more complicated. However, the other consciousness is a self as well. And so in order for it to recognize the first self-consciousness, it must negate itself for the benefit of the first self-consciousness. It negates itself by recognizing only the first self-consciousness and not recognizing itself as a its own self-consciousness. So what the first self-consciousness demands is total recognition of itself by the other self-consciousness. So obviously there's a dilemma here. Um, it's not a one-way street. Uh, mutual recognition must eventually be accomplished where each self-consciousness recognizes the other. However, um, each self-consciousness takes itself to be free above the given life where the other self-consciousness is just in life but not above it. So they're both working from the same model. Each perceives itself to be free above any attachments to anything else, pure being in itself. And each needs the other to perceive it in themselves to make themselves real. So what does this mean? They both can't have it their own way. They engage in a struggle to prove how little life means to them, that they're beyond life. 
So they must be willing to put down their own life, in fact, to prove that they are beyond it, that they are pure being itself. And hence you have the life and death struggle described in the master-slave dialectic. As Stephen Holgate says, here the primitive drive for identity shows how ruthless it can be regarding other identities. Yet another contradiction emerges. Consciousness itself sees a contradiction here. If the other self-consciousness dies, it will not be recognized. As we've said, each wants to prove its freedom to the other. However, it needs the other to be alive to do this. So there's a lesson here. Life is essential for self-consciousness. And this leads to the next logical step. One consciousness is free and alive. The other is alive only and only recognizes freedom in the other. One consciousness abandons the struggle for fear of losing its life, and it stays alive by submitting to the other. This is the lordship bondage dialectic, and that's how it's properly translated from the German, I believe, but it's commonly known as the master-slave dialectic. Now, one consciousness is lord, the other is bondsman. And this leads to a situation now where the master makes the slave do all its work. And Hegel describes this in, in, in detail. However, because the master is making the slave do all the work, a, a faulty relationship then ensues. What happens is the slave actually finds its own freedom in the work that it does. It, uh, it works on things. It, it, it makes them better. It improves things. And the master only consumes what the slave makes and produces. So now you have a problem. The master is finding himself relying on a less free consciousness for everything, and the slave is finding some freedom in accomplishing things. So you have a dilemma. As contemporary philosopher Robert Brandom states, I quote, Hegel's discussion of the dialectic of the master and slave is an attempt to show that asymmetric recognitive relations are metaphysically defective that the norms they institute aren't the right kind of help to help us think and act with, to make it possible for us to think and act. Asymmetric recognition in this way is authority without responsibility on the side of the master and responsibility without authority on the side of the slave. And Hegel's argument is that unless authority and responsibility are commensurate and reciprocal, no actual normative statuses are instituted. This is one of his most important and certainly one of his deepest ideas. So how has this actually worked out in, in history? And this brings us to the work of one Alexander Kojev. Who was Kojev? He was a 20th century Russian-born French philosopher, born in 1902 and passed away in 1968. And in particular, he's probably most famous for his unique take on the uh, master-slave dialectic and the phenomenology. And he saw this as a struggle from the beginning of history right up to the beginning of its end with the Napoleonic Code of Equal Rights. And interestingly, Kojev was primarily responsible for rekindling an interest in Hegel in Europe in the 20th century. And from 1933 to 1939, he delivered a series of lectures on Hegel in Paris on the phenomenology. His lectures were attended by many noteworthy continental philosophers, including Merleau-Ponty and Lacan, and uh, Derrida and Foucault have acknowledged Kojev's influence on them. 
So let's review what Kojiev had to say from his book entitled the Introduction to the Reading of Hegel, which is taken from these lectures. He begins pretty much the same way as Hegel does regarding consciousness, but then he makes it right away about real people in real situations, right at the beginning of history. His key points are as follows. For humans to transcend the animal state of life, there must be a transcendence of itself in terms of its animal being. It, they, humans must transcend their animal state of life. And for Kojev, this is defined as not desiring some finite thing, but wanting or desiring desire itself. This puts man, humans above the animals. To put it simply, humans want the desire of other humans. A human desires a thing not just to own the thing, but to be recognized by another as the owner of that thing. It wants what another desires. It is such action that causes a human non-animalistic desire. Humans seek to have the desire of another. That's what distinguishes us from the animals. And since this is a non-biological desire, humans will risk their biological life to obtain it. For Kojev, one who is not willing to risk one's life for such a recognition is not truly human. Hence, we have the history of all the bloody wars and fights for prestige that go back as far as one wants to go back. And Kojev believes that human reality is nothing more than the recognition of one human by another human. Now, Kojev also, following Hegel, sees a fight to the death that ensues. However, rather than die, one person gives in to the other. One person recognizes the other's superiority as free and human, while it becomes a slave to this other and lives an animal existence. As Kojev says, man was born and history began with this first fight. And he believes that this will eventually come to an end when the difference between master and slave ends. When the master ceases to be master because there are no more slaves, and the slave ceases to be a slave because there are no more masters. A sublation will eventually take place between master and slave. They will both become integral citizens of the universal and homogeneous state first envisioned by Napoleon. This is the paradigm of Alexander Kojev, building from Hegel's master-slave dialectic. He believes that liberal democracy with equal rights for all, which was started with Napoleon and the Napoleonic Code, may be reaching its fullness now or about to be reaching its, its fullness in time and in history. So that's uh, Kojev and what, uh, how he built on the, the, um, the Hegel master-slave dialectic. Now, many Hegel scholars do not believe this was an accurate reflection of what Hegel was trying to say. Hegel was not putting this in a, in a um, historical process, um, but it was more on an abstract level. Um, and um, people have, can have their own interpretations of this, but um, certainly Kojev really got into it and, and developed this uh, the story in his own manner in a very um, interesting way. And this whole notion of recognition um, is, is very important. Um, I'd like to quote um, the sociologist Charles Cooley from his 1902 work, The Looking Glass Self. Cooley states that I am not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. 
And his looking glass self comprises three main components that are unique to humans. We imagine how we must appear to others in a social situation. We imagine and react to what we feel their judgment of that appearance must be. And we develop our sense of self and respond through this perceived judgment of others. Again, it's not what, what judgment the others actually have. It's what we perceive the judgment of the others to be. So this is, this is very important. And I think this is, this is what Hegel is getting at and what Kojev is getting at. So where are we? How is the world coming, moving toward this Napoleonic ideal? Has history, in fact, ended or can we see, are we close to the end? Can we see the end from here? Well, let me bring up um, the works of um, Francis Fukuyama. He's an American political scientist and he wrote a book in 1992 called The End of History and the Last Man. And he really built this on the premise of Kojev and, and Hegel. And it was quite... Um, created quite a stir in intellectual circles around the world. And it brought up this whole debate about the end of history and put Hegel again in the spotlight. And what Fukuyama argued was that Western-style democracies are becoming even more prevalent and that human rights within those will flourish. And this will, in a sense, end history. Not that nothing will happen, but you won't have these major wars and conflicts for greater recognition. And um, this whole ruling class, lower class situation will, will be no longer. And certainly progress has been made along this front. There's no question about it. Uh, we've talked about this before. Um, just going back uh, during the 19th century, most of the world's population lived in either colonial empires, autocracies, or anocracies, which is a combination of autocracy and democracy. Um, the late 19th century saw limited expansion of democracies, but since that time, there's been a general uptrend in the share of the world's population living under democracies, with the possible exception of um, during the World War II. But in the second half of the 20th century, after World War II, colonies have gained independence all over the place, and more and more countries have become pure democracies. And as we stated before, Today, more than half the world's population live in a democracy. Um, and that's way, way above the, where, where it was just even 200, 300 years ago. And interestingly, of those that still live in autocracies, four-fifths of those are living in China. However, that's all well and good, but Fukuyama has since changed his mind. He wrote a book in 2014 called Identity. And in it, he argues that identity groups, identity politics are changing the very core of liberal democracies. He again relies on Hegel, the desire for recognition, and he calls that uh, this desire for recognition by identity groups is posing a potential threat to these liberal democracies. The reason is he, he shows that um, Equal recognition cannot be satisfied by economic or procedural reforms and laws. Um, in other words, having the same amount of wealth as everyone else or having the same opportunity to acquire it is not a substitute for respect. So in other words, you can say equal rights under the law, but if you don't have equal respect, that creates a problem. 
Um, certainly fairness counts in a lot of the identity politics movement, whatever the group is, is about fairness in society. And, and, that, and those are good aspects of, uh, of democracies and bringing those forward. But again, the laws and the regulations do not um, uh, require recognition and respect. So um, Fukuyama is arguing that um, obviously there must be greater fairness for all identity groups within a, a, a country, within a state. But we also must strive for mutual respect of these identity groups. And on the other hand, but by, by pushing the identity group alone um, to the detriment of other groups, in other words, othering, where our, my group is good because other groups are bad, that leads to the same problems. So that is a summary of um, the master-slave dialectic. And um, it, it does appear that uh, history is not ending. As Kojev believed, we have a long way to go. New issues will arrive in, in terms of um, humans' greater striving for freedom and recognition and mutual recognition. So uh, we still have a long way to go, obviously, and um, the end of history is nowhere in sight. So, as I said, this has been a summary of um, Hegel's famous story and uh, one of the most famous narratives of Hegel in all philosophy. And uh, I'd like to sign out again by saying this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.